Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Charles Pryor, and you're listening to New Books in British Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. Diplomatic relationships between indigenous sovereigns and colonial and settler governments were defined by language. In some cases, cultural divides were narrowed using common metaphors. In others, objects such as wampum belts were employed as visual records of past agreements. Speeches were carefully recorded, copied, and cited in later negotiations. Treaties were signed using symbols of name, of clan, or nation. The treaty texts themselves sit within a constellation of other texts. This is a large, complex, and still understudied archive. In Sensitive Negotiations, Indigenous Diplomacy, and British Romantic Poetry, Nikki Hessel reveals the ways in which poetic texts figure in diplomacy in the 19th and 20th centuries. The book ranges across the colonial world from the Grand River Six Nations, the Native South, to the Great Lakes Middle Ground. It then turns globally to South Africa and New Zealand. It is deeply researched and powerfully contextual. It is also reflective, challenging those of us who work on indigenous settler relations to position ourselves in relation to the history and texts we study. Nikki Hazel is Associate Professor at Victoria University in Wellington, New Zealand, and she joins me from there. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Charles. Nice to be here. So I want to start with the sort of the last point that I mentioned in my introduction. Um, and you've written and spoken in, in other places about your own position in the colonial history of New Zealand. And I wonder, by way of introduction, if you could say a little bit more about how that influences what you're doing as a scholar and a writer. Yeah, I mean, I should probably start by saying I don't have a particularly illustrious place in the colonial history of New Zealand. Um, My family are not famous settler New Zealanders at all, very ordinary stock from Scotland and England and Denmark. Uh, But like all settlers in the 21st century, um, I'm grappling with my place on Indigenous land, on stolen land, on colonised land. Um, And I think we've we've seen an enormous uh, turn in scholarly work in recent years, considering what the role of settler scholars is uh, in the colonies, but also if we are going to work on topics that deal with colonisation and indigeneity. Um, I spent a lot of time reflecting on the specifics of my family history, some of which are reflected in this book because they do um, 
they do take place in some of the key diplomatic sites in Aotearoa, New Zealand in the early to mid-19th century, uh, but also on my own 21st century position. Um, someone you and I both know, Cam Shriver, um, suggested the idea of, of wanting to be a bad settler. That is someone who's not uh, beholden to settler colonial logics and is trying to undo them. And I think that's a really, um, a really good framework uh, to operate from as a settler scholar. I've also, uh, like all academics in New Zealand, because we only have publicly funded universities, uh, my salary is paid for by the taxpayer. And in fact, I had a largely taxpayer-funded education here in Aotearoa, New Zealand and in Canada. Um, and the tax base for that education is stolen land. It's land that uh, was taken, confiscated, perhaps acquired under treaty, but often um, with the terms of those treaties not being adhered to. So in a very real way, Indigenous people have already paid for my education, uh, my scholarly training, and now my salary. And I do feel quite a strong obligation to do something with the skills that they uh imparted to me whether they wanted to or not, what they invested in me. Uh, in the end, I, I trained in English literature, I trained in romantic literature, and that's the thing I have to offer. So that's the lens, scholarly lens through which I think about uh, some of the questions of colonial history in my own country, but also in um, other parts of the world, like in, in North America. Um, this is, a, I think, a scholarly position that is becoming more significant in New Zealand, certainly. Um, my colleague Richard Shaw, who teaches at Massey University, just published a really nice piece about his own family history, explaining um, very clearly the rapid economic transformation that settler families went, went through and that we often came from quite uh, poverty-stricken stock in Europe to a place where we were able to become rich very quickly. And the... Uh, beneficiaries of that wealth are people like me in the 21st century who live comfortable middle-class lives, um, who have a good education, um, who have financial security. So that economic transformation is in a very real way enabling the work that I'm able to do. I think it's important to be accountable for uh, how that economic economic transformation makes your work possible and to reflect a little bit on what what settlement and settler colonialism as concepts have done to bring you to the point uh, that you're at today. So yeah, I do uh, think that this, this, you don't need to be um, to know much about the specifics of your own settler history to understand how settler colonialism has benefited you as a scholar and what you might do with with some of the um, some of the benefits you've accrued that way. So you you mentioned in, in 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 that in that response that I mean you are a specialist in um, British Romantic poetry and that's the lens that you're using to look at these contexts and in reading the book it's surprising to see uh, Wordsworth and and Byron crop up uh, in the context in which they do. So what is it about romantic poetry that draws it into the negotiations the book examines? What, what, what is its particular aesthetic uh, that, that seems to appeal to contemporaries in the way that it does? I think there are, there are sort of three points here. Um, and the first one isn't quite an aesthetic point. It's, it's more to do with timing. Um, that the period we tend to refer to as, as the Romantic period in, in British literary history, European literary history, um, 
begins at around the same time that uh, sovereignty relationships between uh, Indigenous peoples and the the European powers are starting to fray or, or have to be realigned. So after the Treaty of Paris, for example, the end of the American War of Independence, as you know, um, there's there's no mention of Native peoples. And so there's a need for a reimagining of the relationship both to European centres of power but also to new settler governments. So that's the beginning of uh, the Romantic period. And so it's not really surprising in some ways that as Indigenous diplomats start to think about these new relationships, they are also looking at what is the new literature coming out of Europe, which is Romantic literature. So it's new and fashionable and timely in it. Uh, looking back, of course, we can see that the period of the Romantic period um, aligns very neatly with the, the period of this settlement or renegotiation of imperial um, relationships, renegotiation of settler indigenous relationships. So partly it's just a question of historical moment. Um, and maybe fashion and what's in the air. There is an aesthetic dimension, though, of course, which is that romantic literature is quite profoundly concerned with a lot of the things that Indigenous peoples were wanting to talk to settler and imperial publics and governments about. Um, land, the ownership of land, but also who belongs to the land, uh, who, who is a, a truly Native person, um, identity, rebellion against authority, resistance to oppression, uh, questions of justice, including racial justice. Uh, so there is an aesthetic dimension, there is a, a dimension to the themes of romantic poetry that I think speaks very closely to Indigenous concerns in that period from the late 18th century right through to the early 20th century. But of course, um, that's not a coincidence. Romanticism is itself forged out of exactly those kind of imperial colonial relationships and what they mean, um, not just globally, but for Britain, because of course, a lot of what happens in the colonies is being reflected in uh, events in Britain as well. And in the treatment of British, uh, uh, poorer members of the British public, uh, women, minority members of the British public, um, are also experiencing some of these same uh, phenomena. So romantic literature already has built into it uh, some awareness of colonial injustice and how the world is being remade in that period. So I don't think it's a coincidence or simply simply a question of timing. I think there's also a very strong um, mutually reinforcing element between what is happening in British Romanticism and European Romanticism and what is happening to Indigenous people globally. Um, and I, I argue in the book that Indigenous diplomats are picking up on something very real in, in British Romanticism's thematic concerns when they turn to those poems and say, you know, this is, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about these kinds of issues. So the... And, and and we're talking, we're sticking with the, the sort of the theme of lenses because there's there's this book, it, it can be approached on a number of different levels. Some of the examples are very local and, and, and others are, are very much global. So um, you use this poetry to, to open up even larger topics uh, beyond the particular turn, uh, 1800 turn, the turn to romanticism and the sort of the affinity between uh, romantic sensibility and, and what's going on. Uh, Larger topics in the book uh, deal with sovereignty, particularly around the Grand River Six Nations, uh, the forced removal of indigenous nations 
in the American Southeast, uh, the place of indigenous nations on the international stage. Uh, I realize now that's a very large question, but I mean, maybe drawing some examples from individual chapters, how does it do this? Hmm. Yeah, I think... I think that my way into these different chapters was to was indeed, as you suggested, to look to look quite locally and quite specifically at the events themselves, how the poetry got used, and it's very different in, in different parts of the book. Um, so, starting with uh, John Brandt um, as one of the leaders of the Grand River Six Nations, uh, wanting to confront Thomas Campbell, the poet, about Campbell's portrayal of. Brandt's father, um, famous leader uh, Joseph Brandt, in his poem Gertrude of Wyoming, and that's that's happening. Those events are happening, if you like, in the Romantic period. Um, John Brandt is in London, um, arguing for sovereignty of Grand River Six Nations, while also conducting this argument about a poem. Um, so that's a very sort of specific, real-time example of engaging in big questions of sovereignty, but poetry also being important to that, being uh, not a side issue, but a kind of central part of how sovereignty is being imagined. The example in the southeast is, is different, of course. It's um, in the lead-up to uh, 1830 and the Removal Act and um, looking at the Cherokee Phoenix's use of, um, of British Romantic poetry to build settler sympathy for uh, particularly the Cherokee Nation's desire to stay in their homelands, to not be removed, and working with themes of sympathy, of home, of what it means to belong to a place, uh, and publishing these poems in English in the newspaper in order to garner the sympathy from settler publics. Um, and then switching to George Copway, the Ojibwe minister uh, who travelled to the Peace Congress in, in Frankfurt in 1850 and who has a real affinity for Byron. And he, um, he quotes a lot of Byron in his writing, but he also makes some, I think, quite skillful use um, and, and, and overlooked <clears throat> use of Byron's own concerns about a world torn apart by violence and war um, and about factionalisation and makes a bid, I think, for the idea that the Ojibwe are still international diplomats, that Anishinaabe still have a role to play as uh, figures in international politics. Um, and then switching to um, Southern Africa and to New Zealand, at this point, uh, often in situations where land is already lost uh, and there's a desire to petition to try and get it back, um, so using poetry as a way of talking to governments, and it is often to government officials, about the values that lie behind legislation, that lie behind um, court cases. Uh, so really thinking about, as you say, big questions of justice and injustice, as well as very particular questions of bureaucracy, bureaucracy and legislation and how they're being formulated. Um, and I think a, a, an important aspect of this that dates right back uh, to, to long before these things became, um, became much more contested is that in, in, in a lot of Indigenous traditions, there isn't really a separation between, if you like, artistic expression of these things and the more hard-nosed political or bureaucratic or legal expression of these things. Mm. 
a European tradition would perhaps draw a harder line between uh, what counts as legislation, what counts as policy, what counts as a treaty. Um, Indigenous peoples often don't do that. There's a much uh, more fluid sense of the art forms that also form part of the diplomacy. And so while the poetry being used is from an entirely different tradition, it's from the English, the British tradition, the the decision to use poetry seems to me to be very consistent with Indigenous diplomatic practice and, and a real assertion of sovereignty over that practice. That poetry still figures it's not trivial or ornamental or decorative. It can be a central part of how you negotiate. And lots of different traditions bring out that aspect that you will always want to turn to art forms uh, of various sort in order to solidify your case and that that is not just window dressing. That's a, a central part of the diplomacy. So just to, to pivot that a little bit, um, from Indigenous uses of uh, British Romantic poetry, how did poetry function the other way um, as a vehicle to generate sympathy for uh, Indigenous peoples among non-Indigenous populations? Probably the best example of this that I found in the book is in the the chapter about the Cherokee Phoenix, um, where... um, Felicia Hemans, who's an important British Romantic poet, very popular in in North America, uh, she becomes the the sort of poet of choice for the Cherokee Phoenix newspaper. And a lot of her poetry is published there in English. And it's quite clearly um, aimed at settler readers. And Hemans talks a lot about... um, people being forced from their homes, people losing touch with their own land, with their own families. She talks a lot about um, deaths through violence. And the whole point of of publishing these poems, it seemed to me, was to remind settlers of their own values. I think the phrasing I use in the book is um, not so much here is what I know, is here is what you know. It's an instruction to settlers to say, here are your values. Here are the things you say in, in your cherished lines of literature that you care about. Um, let's see you live up to them. You know, those are the values you say you're about. Let's see you do the things that manifest those values. And of course, the Bible's the kind of key text here. Um, but once you move the Bible to one side, romantic literature forms an enormous part of the way that this kind of message gets across. Uh, that if, for example, you would be the sort of reader who would shed a tear at a poem about um, a woman being forced to abandon her child because she's being driven from her home, surely you can see that in a real-world situation where this is actually happening right now uh, in your part of the country, um, you should be sympathetic to that. Those are the values that your culture has encoded in literature and cherishes, and you need to be able to act on them. So this is what I mean about literature acting as a, a really fundamental part of the diplomacy Um, We might think of it maybe in in modern terms as sort of like almost a public relations campaign and that it's attempting to get uh, officials but also general readers to understand these very pressing issues and to um, act on the values that their own culture seems to stand for. And finally, I want to sort of uh, return uh, to where we began because, I mean, the, the striking aspect of this book is its currency, its its immediacy. 
um, you know, it's deeply historical in its treatment of the Haudenosaunee and it moves forward. But I mean, it really also offers a lot of commentary on what is happening, <clears throat> pardon me, right now. So can you say something about how the themes of the book uh, come together uh, in your own country's past and present? Well, I think, um, you know, one of the things about the settler colonies is that in some ways they're all the same and in some ways they're very, very different. Um, in Aotearoa, we tend to have a sense of our own, we have our own kind of sense of exceptionalism, different from American exceptionalism, but our own kind of sense that that we were the good settlers, we were the people who got it right, uh, we were the people who negotiated a treaty um, and have, have done better by Māori, Indigenous people of New Zealand, than the other settler colonies have. And of course, there's some truth to that in some areas, but there's there's a great deal of dishonesty and self-delusion involved in that. And you only have to look at um, incarceration statistics, health statistics, uh, education outcomes, life expectancy in Aotearoa for Māori to know that uh, we weren't the good settlers. Uh, we were doing exactly the things that were happening in other parts of the world. What has perhaps marked New Zealand out as a little different from some of the other settler colonies, though, uh, is the way in which uh, Te Tiriti, the Treaty of Waitangi, is quite central to New Zealanders' understandings of themselves, um, including those people who are very anti-treaty and feel it's irrelevant and feel it's in the past. They nevertheless talk about it, they nevertheless know about it, and they're part of that public discussion. Um, something that's changed very dramatically in the course of my lifetime is that Pākehā New Zealanders now tend to see themselves more as not just bound by the treaty in a strict legal sense of reparations and trying to make amends, but as honoured in the treaty itself. Uh, we, we talk now about tangata whenua, that is people of the land, in other words Māori, and tangata tiriti, people of the treaty, that's us. We, we are the people who came here by treaty. Um, it's not a perfect paradigm, uh, but it does have real opportunities, I think, for us to reimagine ourselves as the inheritors of that diplomatic moment, of that moment when um, our ancestors, Māori and Pākehā, tried to build something um, very flawed, uh, no doubt with real power imbalances, but we're attempting to build something um, of a partnership that could be re continue to be realised in the 21st century. Um, so when I think back to the late 18th century, or certainly into the 19th century, um, and into the period of British Romanticism, I am thinking about my own ancestors arriving here and uh, trying to imagine a place for themselves here as settlers, negotiating with Māori, trying to understand themselves as living alongside Māori. And so to me, the Romantic period doesn't actually feel very much like the distant past, and those negotiations don't feel like they uh, exist on a different time plane from the one I'm living on. They feel very present in the both the um, the real pain and um, hurt of our history here in New Zealand, but also the opportunity we have uh, to build something that lives up to those values, the, the values of the treaty, but also the values of of the poems and literature that I'm talking about. I've been speaking with Nikki Hessel about her new book, Sensitive Negotiations, Indigenous Diplomacy and British Romantic Poetry, which is hot off the press with SUNY Press 
Nikki, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk to me about this fantastic, globally synthetic, deeply informative, and very current and much needed book. Thanks so much, Charles.